0: How do you have the steps in your vendor process split? Are they all done by one team member? Are they split within the vendor team? Or like some companies, are there separate departments handling separate parts of the process? And what could be wrong with that? Keep listening. Welcome to episode 125, How Do You Split Your Vendor Process Task Plus an Example. And that example, by the way, is going to be of how a 17-person vendor team processing 2,000 requests per month and how many team members were assigned to different tasks. All right, so let's say you have a manual or mostly manual vendor setup and maintenance process. How does your organization split those steps? Are they all with the vendor team, be it that vendor team in purchasing, in accounts payable, as part of, or the master data group, or master data management group? Or are the steps split between departments? Or for that matter, are they split within the vendor team? So first, let's take a look at what those vendor process tasks are. Now, when onboarding a vendor using a manual or mostly manual process, typically one team member within a department can handle all of the related tasks, all of those steps. Now, I have six steps that I'm going to give. and. Keep in mind, these are high level, um, and I know that they can be customized per organization. For example, I don't have anything in here about certificates of insurance. Sometimes that's kept within a different department. Sometimes it's in uh, with the vendor team. Uh, I don't have that in here. and there, There may be other steps in your processes that I don't have in here either, and there could be some steps in this process that you don't have, but I do recommend. So Let's start with number one and this could be one that I recommend that you don't have and that is to when you get that request in is to authenticate the requester and that's no matter whether they are a vendor or an employee who submitted the request collected all the documents and is submitting it on behalf of the vendor Uh, and that's just because uh, of fraud Uh, nowadays you can't even necessarily trust if you're getting those supporting documentations via email then you can't even necessarily uh, trust that the email, even when it looks like it's coming from a valid email address, that it's valid. Um, There are so many instances of uh, email account takeover where uh, the fraudsters or cyber criminals have been successful with uh, uh, phishing and getting those login credentials that they sent the email from within Uh, the vendors or the employees uh, email address. So it looks like it's valid. So authenticate the request. And if you need to know how to do that, um, I will put a link to a on-demand webinar and you can kind of skip around because it'll be on YouTube and I have timestamps so you can get more information on authentication. Um, The second one is, so you authenticate the requester and then you receive or you review the supporting documentation that they submitted, right? So you're reviewing the that they have everything that you require, such as the IRS W nine. Um, if they're getting uh, would like to get a uh, ACH or electronic payment, hopefully, hopefully you have a company branded ACH form, and you're you're reviewing to make sure that they have all the supporting documentation, uh, and then. The step three, so after you authenticate the requester, you review the supporting documentation, now you're going to do all your validations. So that's your IRS 10 match. That's your OFAC watch list. Um, If they are a uh, vendor uh, in uh, the EU, for example, or one of the countries that have a value-added tax or VAT, you want to validate that um, so that whomever in your organization reclaims the VAT that you pay on invoices, um, they'll have a valid number that they can uh, that they can use. And so you want to do all your vendor validations and then the fourth step is if you have changes to existing vendor data that's what the re- if that's what the request is and you want to perform confirmation of those changes so that is uh, changes where it's change in banking, change in remit address, email and just to put this out here now you don't just want to do a confirmation for um, banking you also want to do a confirmation for any data that relates to payments so remit address can be checks or the confirmation itself that could be telephone number email you want to make sure that uh, you're not only checking banking because there are other pieces of data that affect, uh, payments as well as, um, the reduction of fraud. And so, uh, you do want to perform confirmation. Now you can perform that confirmation. I know everyone talks about picking up that phone and nothing wrong with that. However, uh, I was able to, uh, uh, work with my client who work with the auditors to get an alternative in place because I I don't know about you guys, but I know but even before COVID, it was hard to get these vendors on the phone. And as everyone went home, um, it was hard for not only if you guys had a hard time trying to make sure that you were connected to uh, the company email or connect it to the company phone, your vendors had those issues too. And so some type of confirmation needs to be done. Uh, and I recommend that it's, it's done as far as, um, Uh, based on authenticating the requester. And then it's also done by requiring authentication on that banking form I talked about. Um, And I've got some webinars. I actually have quite a few. Um, Just go to my website, deborahrichardson.com and go to the free resources. You'll see a list of webinars uh, that will have more information on that confirmation, uh, how to make that process easier. All right, so that was step 4. Step 5 is now that they have uh uh performed the confirmation for changes or completed the validations for um, new vendors. Now comes the data entry into the accounting system or ERP. And then once that's done, if it's a new vendor, you're going to send them a welcome letter so they know um, how to do business with accounts payable, especially in uh, letting them know if they need changes in the future how that needs to how that needs to be done. And then uh, or if it is a uh, change uh, in the vendor data uh, Uh, then you are going to send them a notification uh, letting the vendors know that the change has been done. And I do have a separate blog um, on that and I'll probably link link it in the um, blog post and then I'll put a link to the blog post in in the show notes. So you can click through the blog post and then you'll see actually all the links that I'm talking about here today. All right, so that was the six and I'll repeat them because I was talking a lot through each one. But uh, the first one is authentication of the requester. The second one is reviewing the supporting documentation. Third one is performing applicable vendor validations. Fourth one is performing confirmations to, ch- uh, to for changes to existing vendor data. Fifth one is data entry into the accounting system or ERP. And then the sixth one is sending a welcome letter to the new vendor or sending notification um, of uh, changes to existing vendors. So those are the six. Now, assigning the tasks of this process can, again, vary by organization, where some organizations may choose to split these tasks to different team members or even to different departments due to limited staff or other reasons. And I do want to say here, I know of two instances, one where it wasn't a client of mine, but I think somebody asked the question, um, and indicated that they had someone in payroll that was, uh, calling, uh, uh, doing the confirmation calls for bank changes. Um, and so that was a little, uh, that, that was a little different and I'll talk about that in a minute too. But, um, so I've heard of, uh, people in, in payroll doing that. And then I heard of, um, again, with the bank confirmation that being done in, uh, another department. So I think in that case, it was the procurement team or purchasing team that was handling the vendor onboarding. And then I think it was the accounts payable team that was doing the, uh, calls, uh, the confirmation calls in any event, it could be flipped. Um, there were, there were, there was a procurement team or purchasing team. And then also the AP team, they had split who was doing the vendor, um, onboarding and then who, uh, or vendor onboarding and processes, uh, uh, all the steps except step four performing the confirmation that was in a totally different team. So let me talk about what I think is, the, is the issue with that. Or maybe this is just something you need to take into control or take into um, consideration and then mitigate, uh, mitigate those, any issues with maybe some compensating controls. So here's the problem is least privilege access. So one aspect to keep in mind when determining if or how these tasks will be split is least privilege access. Now, least privilege access reduces fraud because it requires that access to vendor sensitive information, like their banking, their social security number, etc., be restricted to only those that need access to that information. Now, when performing these steps, the more team members that are required in the process, the more team members that have access to the vendor-sensitive data, either within the vendor master file or through handling the supporting documentation. So, for example, if there are multiple team members that all have access to edit the vendor master file um, and thus already have access to vendor sensitive information and the steps are split up. That should not be an issue. So if you've got a vendor team and you don't have one person handling um, that same request the whole way through, uh, it's not going to be a problem because you uh, that same all of the vendor team uh, vendor team members will have access to that uh, sensitive information anyway because they have access to the vendor master file. If, however, team members outside of those that have access to edit the vendor master file are brought into the process, now those team members will now be exposed to the vendor sensitive information and will have access to perpetrate internal fraud or will now be uh, susceptible to release vendor sensitive data in an external fraud scheme. So if you've got a vendor team that has access to the vendor master file, but you've got a whole nother different team that is doing the bank, uh, for example, the bank uh, change in banking, uh, those confirmations, that means that that team or those team members are handling the supporting documentation and they have that vendor's banking in their hand. And that means that those team members will now also be exposed to the vendor-sensitive information and will have access to perpetrate internal fraud or will now be susceptible to release vendor-sensitive data in an external fraud scheme. So if they are the target of a fraudster, of a cyber criminal, they've got that vendor's banking in their hand. And so they may be the weakest link in the security chain as the users always are. And so that's why I think it really needs to be restricted and limited and least privileged access needs to be followed at all times. I do understand, however, if there are uh, limited team members in departments, uh, just keep that in mind. And if you have to uh, split, split up those uh, tasks where sensitive information is in the hands of employees that don't have access to, to that information in the system, then there needs to be some type of uh, controls that, uh, that are implemented so that you avoid both internal or occupational fraud and external fraud. Now, before I get to the example, I want to talk a bit about the sponsor of this podcast. On this podcast, I talk a lot about avoiding bad vendor data, and that includes vendor addresses. A tool that I personally use to validate vendor addresses is Smarty Streets. SmartyStreets is an online tool that will let you not only standardize U.S. and non-U.S. addresses, but it also goes further to tell you if the address is vacant, inactive, or only a P.O. box. With individual and bulk lookups, make sure you use Smarty Streets to validate your vendor addresses. Check out SmartyStreet.com AP to get 250 free U.S. address checks today. Now let's get to the example. So when I was a practitioner processing over 2,000 requests per month, all vendor process tasks were performed within the vendor team. Now, I did have a 17-person team, but not everyone was assigned to processing those vendor requests. And we also had um, uh, requests from each region. So we had U.S., Canada. We had uh, APAC. LATAM, uh, EMEA, and so uh, they, you'll see that it was split accordingly. So we're just going to go ahead and start. So I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different um, functions or areas that they were split. The first one is U.S. vendor requests. Now I had six and a half team members and they handled the review of the supporting documentation, validations. Um, I should have said authentications first. So they handled authentications, review of supporting documentation, validations, vendor change confirmations, and also the entry into the accounting system or ERP. We did have The sending of the welcome letter, that was something that was automated as long as we had our, uh, had an email on file for the vendor. Anyone, any vendor that didn't have an email and they had a change, we actually had um, that same team member had to handle them generating a manual letter to the vendor's uh, uh, physical address or mailing address now did i say that they also handled the entry into the accounting system or erp so they handle all the all the steps now what's funny here is that um during the uh, starting actually kind of october ish um, but not really full time but from that point in time uh, uh, doing some of the vendor cleanup and some of the pre-work through January and then part of March, I did pull two of those team members out so that they could handle the 1099s and 1042s that needed to go out um, uh, by by uh, January 31st and then March 15th. So uh, two of those team members were pulled out. Uh, and actually, I think we might have had them working on, on something else part of the year, sometimes depending on how how the request, what the volume was, I would kind of rotate. But on a, on a normal basis, mid-year, six and a half team members uh, handled all of the U.S. vendor requests. Now, non-U.S., the second area, non-U.S. or international vendor requests, there were two team members, and again, that was APAC, uh, LATAM, and EMEA, and they handled, again, the authentication, review of supporting documentation, valid, uh, validations, uh, vendor change confirmations, entry into the accounting system, again, with that automated uh, um, a notification we didn't have an automated um, welcome letter and as a matter of fact we didn't do a, a welcome letter but we did do the notification for existing vendor changes alright so that was uh, six and a half team members on u.s. two team members on non u.s. now most of you should, should be aware that you get those notice of change requests from your bank. Now I had a half a team member assigned to, uh, assigned to, to that, um, uh, function. And the other half of them, that was the six and a half. So the other half, they dealt with the U.S. vendor request. Now, these are those emails, or you might still be getting them via fax, that you get from your bank notifying you of changes that the bank made to the banking data you included on your pay file. And if these changes are not made in a timely manner, your company could be susceptible to notifying. So I had someone that was assigned uh, to uh, to grab those notifications, research them and get those updated in the system. And most of the time there were, it was where the routing number had changed because banks merged and you know, vendors never, uh, tell, tell you that. That's another reason why you need to clean your vendor master file and then check that. Cause what's the recent one? Um, I think it was, uh, BB and T and, and another bank, SunTrust. Uh, they, um, Uh, merged and they have like a whole new bank name now and so that is a new routing number so uh, you need to check those and so I had someone assigned a half a person assigned to notice a change request now the next two are the help desk we actually did have a separate vendor team help desk I had it separated I had one for US and Canada and I had two team members assigned to that and they handled all the telephone and email inquiries. And then the same with the non-US or international uh, help desk. They handled all APAC, LATAM, and EMEA. And I also had two team members on that. Although the volume was a lot... Lower, but uh, they handled all telephone and email inquiries. It wasn't a lot of telephone; it was more uh, uh, it was more uh, email. But we had a lot more issues with um, non U.S. or international payments, and so even though um, you know it was international, and that really was a smaller volume. Of vendors in our vendor master file it still ended up being a large volume uh, or a similar volume of inquiries and the other thing that uh, too that was uh, that was unique here is that um, bilingual team members um, were were a plus I think I had one that was bilingual and then one that wasn't and we can work with either but it was a plus um, having that one person that was bilingual All right. And then uh, the next one. uh, So this is number six was project work. Now I actually had three team members that were assigned to project work. So these were higher level team members that handled projects such as robotics process automation, so we could automate eligible manual tasks. And I really thought that was a privilege um, to, to be able to um, have someone on the team that could uh, upskill and learn a RPA uh, platform and and identify eligible manual tasks that they could then automate within the team. So that was really good. And then, of course, we implemented the Vendor Self-Registration Portal And so I had um, folks assigned to that. And then, of course, there were other items that required um, research within the vendor team. Um, We always had some project going on where, uh, the vendor team would need to come in and represent, uh, and, and represent on that project for the vendor processes. And that's where, uh, a team member would go into that. So I had three team members to do that. And so all of that is 16 and the 17th person was a supervisor. Um, it was one supervisor. Actually at one point I had a couple of supervisors, but we reorged, and I ended up with, um, one supervisor, and that supervisor um, supervised all the team members except for those that were performing the project work, and those folks um, reported to me. So that was an example of a 17 person team, uh, and how I split those out. So I hope you, uh, you got some value out of here, uh, out of this podcast episode and was able to, um, at least have a takeaway and take a look at, you know, who has access to your vendor master file, who has access to the vendor supporting documentation, um, that can also include sensitive data, just like vendor master file can. So thanks everyone. I hope you enjoyed the 125th episode of the Putting the AP in Happy podcast where accounts payable team members are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. Don't forget to check the show notes for the links mentioned in the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode consider subscribing and writing a review of my podcast on the platform that you use to listen. Stay happy.